Good evening. Whatever circumstances are taking place in your life, I trust that you can say, in Christ it is well with my soul. This is the great hope and the promise that we have, that in Christ it is well with our souls. Our call to worship this evening is drawing on Psalm 56, there verse 12 and 13. I'm going to read this in the imperative, changing the pronouns just a little bit, so it is a call for us. The word calls us in this way, then, perform your vows to God, render thank offerings to him, for he has delivered your soul from death, yes, your feet from falling, that you may walk before him in the light of life. Now, the one who is greater than death and the devil, even our Lord Jesus Christ, has overcome death. In him, it is well with your soul. In him, your soul has been delivered from death. And therefore, the word calls us to give thanks, to rejoice, uh, to delight ourselves in the comfort and the hope that we have in Christ. Uh, we'll begin singing this evening uh, with Trinity number 339, the blue hymnal. All of our hymns this evening will come from the Trinity hymnal. If you'd stand with me, uh, let's sing together this hymn, a hymn of praise to our triune God. glorious and holy God, we come to you this night to give you thanks, to worship you. We thank you that you have called us to this duty, and we thank you that you have given us the grace to desire it, and we thank you that you have so worked in our hearts that we might delight in worshiping you. We pray that as we come that you would forgive us for the sins that we have committed even this Lord's Day. We thank you that you bid us come, knowing uh, who we are and what we are better than we know ourselves. We thank you that you bid us come by faith in Christ and that you work that faith within us. We thank you that 
in Christ, we do have forgiveness. We pray that we might rejoice in this reality, even as we worship, that we would do so by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit. And it is in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen. Our next hymn is number uh, 348 in the same hymnal, Psalm 134. We bless God, lifting our hearts and our voices together to praise Him. Number 100, excuse me, 348. seated. Our scripture reading this evening is from John chapter, uh, well we're picking up there at the last verse of chapter 7 and we'll read down through verse 30 of chapter 8, the gospel according to John, beginning there at the end of chapter 7. Christ has in chapter 7 declared that Whoever believes in him shall receive the Spirit, the Spirit who is that river of living water. We see the controversy among the people as they hear the word of Christ. The Pharisees, the priests reject him and question his authority. And then picking up there in verse 53 of chapter 7. Here's God's word. They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to sown such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, 
beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. As we see the passage open, and this woman taken in sin brought before Christ, we ought to recognize that no one more than Christ had the authority to condemn her. It was his law that she had broken. He is God, whose law condemns adultery. But yet we see that Christ, in his declaration that he is the light of the world, that he is the one who will be lifted up, that he is the one in whom is forgiveness of sins, that he is the one in whom is mercy, This is the one who forgives sin, and even this woman taken in the act of sin is forgiven by Christ. We hear the word calling us tonight to believe in Christ. Those who do not believe in him will die in their sins. Those who believe that he is the Christ, that he is from the Father, that he does the things that are pleasing to the Father. Those who walk in the light of life will not walk in darkness, but will have everlasting life. We hear this testimony. And we are called to believe it and to be saved by the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're praying tonight for the Phoenix Reformed Baptist Church, picking up there in the bulletin where we left off this morning. And then also for the Durands as they're seeking to plant a church in Quebec.
Let's pray for the Lord, or pray to the Lord on behalf of these things. Father, we give thanks for your word. We thank you that it brings Christ to us. We thank you that it is true, that it is certain, and that it is to be trusted. We thank you that you have so worked in our hearts that we might receive it as the word of God. For we know that apart from your spirit, we do not hear the word of God. Our hearts are bent upon evil and we seek joy in other things. But We thank you for your grace, which by your spirit's power has so worked in us that we might not only hear the voice of Christ calling to us from the word, but that we might believe it, that we might find in him our salvation and forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the reminder that Christ ever lives and that he is still the light of life. We pray that you would help us, even as we sit under this word tonight, that we might see more clearly what you have given us in Christ, that we might know more of his power and of his authority, that we might hear his word and its imposition upon us, that we might bend our wills under it, that we might repent from those things which we have, in which we have rebelled against his word. We pray that you would grant us the grace of faith and repentance that we might more closely align ourselves with our Lord Jesus Christ, even this evening. We thank you for those who are preaching the gospel and doing so in places that are both near and far. We thank you for the Phoenix Reformed Baptist Church, and we are grateful that you are blessing the gospel there in that place. We thank you for the lives touched and the hearts changed. We thank you for those who worship Jesus Christ, and do so in sincerity and truth. We thank you that you are adding to their number such that they have need of a new worship space, and we pray that you would provide this for them. We ask that uh, you would bless the, uh, the needs that they have, uh, that you would provide for them financially in such a way that they would be able to afford uh, the space and that you would provide the space uh, that would accommodate them as they are growing in number. We pray for those members among them that have major health issues. Uh, Father, we know the difficulty uh, that this can often cause. We know the affliction and trial that uh, we face as uh, we are often uh, experiencing the weakness of our flesh. We pray that these would not be occasions for doubt for our brothers and sisters there, but uh, rather, than, uh, rather than producing unbelief, we pray that these things might be a cause for increase of faith. We pray that you would encourage them and comfort them with the knowledge that their salvation is secure in Christ and that though their bodies may waste away and eventually die, yet in Christ they have the hope of the gospel, the hope of the resurrection. We pray that you would keep them and bless them and that they might know much joy because of the gospel. We pray for their pastors that you would continue to grow them and Mature them in the faith, even as they seek to lead others in the faith. We pray that their progress might be apparent to all and that they might be good examples among your people there. And we pray that in your time you would raise up deacons. We thank you that you do give these gifts to your church. And we pray that you would meet their need in your time and in your way according to your will. And we pray also for the Durans as they're seeking to plant a church there in Canada. And even as we give thanks uh, for uh, their vision and for their desire to preach the gospel, we recognize that surely this must be 
a challenging time for them. Uh, we pray that you might bless their efforts, that you would make them uh, faithful. We thank you for uh, the new members that you've added to them. We thank you for the new worship place that they have been afforded. We, we are grateful for this. Even as we pray for this for one church, we give thanks for your provision in another place. This is a sign of your goodness and your care for your people, Father. We pray that in both of these locations that Christ might be lifted up and magnified. We pray that the gospel might bear much fruit, both in the lives of unbelievers and in the lives of your saints. And We pray that in all things, your church might be built up and edified. Even as we think for ourselves, our desire for this, that we might grow up into Christ in every way, mature and steady. We ask that you would be doing this work in our own hearts this night, even as we worship you, that by these means of grace, that you would be making us more like Christ, making us more confident in him, making us more humble as we seek to follow him, making us more reliant upon you, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll take the uh, Trinity hymnal again, we'll sing number 261. Christ in his word draws near. This is the great promise that God gives us and the great joy that we have, that when we come to the word, there we come to Christ. Let's stand as we sing number 261.
Take your copy of the scriptures to Matthew chapter 8. start at verse 18 and go through the end of the chapter. Our text this evening is verses 28 through 34. Matthew 8 verses 18 through 34 and our, our focus this evening starting at verse 28. Here's the word of God. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of God, the word of the God of all power, the one who speaks and who commands all things to obey him. Let us receive it with faith. And let us receive it, not asking it to go away from us. 
Let us delight in the one who has such power. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing on your, our reading of your word this evening and our consideration of it. We ask, God, that you would confront sins in us, that you would foster faith in us, and that you would help us to walk in a way that pleases you in this world. We ask these things for the sake and in the name of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Amen. In our previous two sermons in the text of Matthew, we've seen that Jesus is more valuable than all treasures and that he is powerful over all nature. Jesus is more valuable than all treasures and he is powerful over all nature. So more valuable than all treasures. We saw, saw that at the beginning of what we just read. In verses 18 through 22, you have the scribe, and he wants to go wherever the teacher goes. And he says, yes, but I'm going in a place where there's going to be difficulty. And then you have the disciple who says, ah, oh, but let me first bury my father. And he says, no, leave the dead to bury their own dead. You come and follow me. The idea there being that Jesus is worth more than all else that you might think you can attain and all else than you might think you're leaving behind. Jesus must be the focus and, and the value of all that you have. So that's the first thing we saw. And then, and then, I guess two weeks ago, we saw in verses 23 through 27 that Jesus is powerful over all nature. He and his disciples get into the boat, and what happens but a storm arises on the sea, a very, a very powerful storm such that the, the boat is being swamped by the waves, and Jesus, though he's asleep, is in complete control. He rebukes the, uh, offers a rebuke to the disciples for their little faith, and then rebukes the wind and the sea, and there's a great hush demonstrating his divine power. And so we see that Jesus is more valuable than all treasures and more powerful than all nature. This evening, then, we see that Jesus is greater than all spirits. Jesus is greater than all spirits. Uh, you, might, you might put that in another, uh, another way. Jesus is greater than all the powers of darkness. Might be another way that we say it. Jesus is greater than all treasures. Jesus is greater than all nature. And Jesus is greater than all spiritual forces. Having reached the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Matthew tells of how those in darkness react to the Lord of glory in their midst. Now, those in darkness, two different types of those in darkness, but how those in darkness react to the Lord of glory who is in their midst. There's a confrontation between Jesus and the demoniacs that you see in verses in verses 28 through 29, you see a confrontation between Jesus and the demoniacs. Then you see the spirits begging and drowning. And then finally, a reaction of the Gadarenes, or sometimes called the Gerasenes, and, um, and, and the herdsmen as well. And there at the end. And so you have... Uh, the spirits begging and drowning, and then the reaction at the end. So then, so first, then we have the confrontation between Jesus and the demoniacs. Uh, he came from the other side. Remember that Jesus 
this is why we really started at verse 18, is because Jesus sees the crowds and decides he's going to cross the Sea of Galilee. He's going to go over into Gentile country. He's going to get away from these crowds for his own purposes. And those purposes include what we're reading this evening and looking at this evening. He decides he's going to get to the other side. So, uh, And yet there's these two other events in the process that we looked at in those previous two passages. Remember that all that Jesus does is on purpose, with an aim to fulfilling the ministry he has been given by the Father. Jesus doesn't get to the other side as just a, a wandering gypsy or something like that. Jesus is going to the other side on purpose. He is in the land of the, the Galileans or uh, the Gentiles, in the land of the Gerasenes, Gadarenes, on purpose. Doesn't just happen. He purposefully goes to the other side. He has purposely entered a world in which darkness seems to reign. And if it didn't seem that way, although it should have to you, even if it didn't seem that way when he was over in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, in, in the land of Galilee and Capernaum and Nazareth, it certainly is evident here. Jesus has purposefully entered not just any kind of world or the world in any kind of state, but this world that is full of darkness, this world that is full of sin and death. And so Jesus has purposefully done so. Is it not fitting then that those whom he meets are demons who are among the tombs? It is fitting that demons be among the tombs. There, in the realm of death, as Matthew Henry puts it, the devil moves among the trophies of his victory, the dead bodies of men. Next time you pass by a, uh, a cemetery, think, there are the trophies of the devil's victory. And don't end there. Move on in your thinking to the things that we're seeing here this evening, or, or really what we see as we get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, namely that uh, the devil's victory is only an apparent victory and only a temporary victory. But nevertheless, the realm of death is the devil's trophies of victory. Not only that, he is, not only has Jesus entered into this realm, he has brought his disciples into this realm of darkness that they might behold his glory. You know, Jesus could have gone over to the Gadarenes by himself. And yet he tells the, the one disciple, let the dead bury their dead. And then he takes the disciples with him over to the realm of the dead in order that they might behold his glory. That's not, we don't see that in the text. No, it doesn't say, and the disciples beheld his glory. But they're there. <laughs> they're with him. Everybody beholds his glory. And the disciples react in, in a way that is unspoken. We only see uh, a negative reaction from others. The darkness of the spirits is such that it afflicts man. When we look at this in verse 28, we see, uh, just how deep their darkness is and, and where their darkness is directed. The two demon-possessed men come out. It's not just demons that come out. It's demon-possessed men. There are two men that come that are possessed by demons. And these demon-possessed men, or rather these demons who work in these men, are so fierce that no one could pass that way. 
There's a a darkness to these spirits, a darkness toward those whom they possess. Here are image bearers. Here are men created in the image of God and yet used to do the devil's bidding. And not only are these two men afflicted, but so also are all who would seek to pass by. They're also afflicted. The devil is, is taunting and terrorizing mankind. And we see this especially in our text this evening. We see as the, the two demon-possessed men are attacking him and attacking others. Now, this, this does remind us that there are really evil spirits in this world. We live in a very enlightened age with our own ways of thinking about things as though there are not spiritual forces of darkness at work around us, and yet... There are. Um, if you've ever read the screw tape letters, uh, you should if you haven't, but they're uh, the, um, uh, the devils say that the best way to get their way is really by convincing man that they don't exist. Uh, convince them that they don't exist and you end up, um, you end up being able to have your way with them. And there are dark spirits even around us today. It wasn't just in Jesus' day. And the effect is still the same, that their goal is to attack man as God's special creature. And the spirits confront Jesus in a remarkable way. They despise his presence, asking, What have you to do with us? What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come, out, have you come here to torment us before the time? How dare they? How dare they confront the Son of God? What have you to do with us? You have no right. No creature has any right to confront God in that way. Nevertheless, they do. Even in their, their uh, confrontation of Jesus, they testify to two truths that they know about their relationship to Jesus. First, they know that they are beneath his authority because he is the Son of God. They confront him in a proud and arrogant way as devils do and yet they do recognize that he is the son of god they call him the son of god consider what the disciples wondered in the boat as they crossed the sea in asking what sort of man is this that's what it that's what matthew records them saying in verse 27 the men marveled what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him here the demons recognize immediately that this is no mere man he is god they recognize that they are beneath him that they are under his authority because he is god the second thing that they recognize and that they testify to even in their confrontation of jesus is that they know that they will be tormented by him at an appointed time. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Not just have you come here to torment us as though that's a mere possibility, but rather are, have you come here to torment us before the time? There is an appointed time on which all the devils will be tormented by Jesus Christ the Son of God. And they recognize that that time hasn't quite yet come. 
in some way. They, they recognize that. And so they beg of him or they ask of him, have you, rather they challenge him, have you come to torment us before the time? They're confessing something very serious and clear about Jesus, that he has authority and that his authority will be exercised in particular in his tormenting them at the end of time. In verses 30 to 32, we then have the spirits begging him and drowning a number of of swine, of pigs. Uh, First, they beg him. Jesus responds, as he has in the past, with a word. Uh, After they beg him, there's this herd of pigs and the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, Send us away into the herd of pigs. If you've come to deal with us, if you've come to to cast us out of these men, then cause us to go into those unclean swine. There's their begging. It's not even just an asking. Notice he does say the demons begged him. It's not a mere negotiation. It's not like the uh, devils are on equal terms with Jesus. Well, you know, okay, if you're going to have to cast us out, then, you know, maybe we can go over here to the swine and maybe you can let us go there instead of sending us somewhere else. No, they're begging him. If you're going to cast us out, then let us go over to the swine. Oh, please. And Jesus responds with a word. You'll remember at the beginning of the chapter, uh, the centurion comes to Jesus in Capernaum, and the centurion has a servant who's paralyzed at home, and he wants Jesus to heal his, his paralyzed servant, and Jesus offers to come. You know, the, the demons don't want him anywhere near them. Jesus offers in his kindness and mercy to come to the centurion, The centurion says, no, because you have great authority. Rather, say a word. Just say a word. And paralysis will obey you. At the end of the chapter, or at the end of that passage in verse 13, uh, to the centurion, Jesus said, go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. Jesus answers with basically a word. The rest is simply to fill it out, but really it's a word, go, go, and it will be done for you as you've believed. Now, of course, the response uh, here in, in our passage this evening doesn't include the latter portion of that phrase, since the demons don't believe in the sense of resting in confidence in the kindness of the Lord toward them. But the first part, the singular word, go, is all that it takes for the devils to flee from the two, these two men, just as the paralysis fled from the servant of the centurion. Here we just see Jesus' authority, 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 authority. You know, you might think of the Gospel of Matthew and you think of Jesus just walking around. Again, he's not a meandering man. He's a man on a mission. He's a man with a plan. He's a man with authority. He is not a mere man. He is a man who is God. And throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we see this great authority of Jesus Christ. All creatures are his servant, bodies and demons alike. They go out to the swine and they drown them. 
Behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the water. Death is the manner of the devil. He wants nothing good for you, nor do those who operate under him. He wants only death and destruction. He only wants to destroy all that comes under his sway. And then we have, finally, the reaction of the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes. I keep saying the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes because um, they're the same people and in different places they're, they're called different things. We have the, the reaction then of the Gadarenes and their herdsmen. The herdsmen who are watching these swine go into the city. They have witnessed the power of Christ over the devils in this world. And they go forth with the testimony to his great works. They go forth declaring what great power Jesus has and what great work he has done. And so the city comes out and it reacts in a manner that follows the pattern of the demons before them. They come out to see the things. Notice what the, uh, what the herdsmen say when they go into the city. They told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. Not especially what happened to the herd, the herd of pigs. Rather, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. Now, the right way to react then is to come out in wonder. Remember, these demon-possessed men are, first of all, men. They have bodies and souls. They're more valuable than 2,000 pigs. Second of all, they've afflicted many other men. No one could pass that way because of them. To go out would be to go out, the proper way of going out would be to go out in wonder at the great and marvelous good that has been done. But that's not how they go out. Instead, they follow the pattern of the demons. As the demons beg to be rid of Christ's presence, so too do the gathering citizens beg to be rid of Christ's presence. They came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Just following, they begged him from verse 31. The demons begged him, and then... The citizens begged him to leave. Let us leave or you leave. Let us leave or you leave. It is a, great, it is a sign of great evil akin to the evil of demons to desire the absence of God's power. To desire the absence of God's presence is the kind of evil that is expressed by demons. We don't want God around. We don't want God in this world. We, we, uh, we excise him from our thinking and our hearts and our lives. To do so is to play the part of demons. It's to be no better than the spiritual forces of darkness in this evil world. Not only do the unhealthy and the waves respond to the Lord's presence and authority, but those who sit in darkness, both the evil spirits and the evil city, respond to the Lord by begging for his absence. Jesus' authority over the spiritual forces of darkness in this world evokes a response of dread from those who remain in darkness. 
I've already said that there is another response, the response of the disciples as they behold Christ's glory, but that's not Matthew's focus for us, is it? Matthew's focus for us is for us to see that those who are in darkness dread Jesus. In fact, we see that the presence of the Holy One causes terror in the whole unholy. It causes terror. It's not just that they don't want to be in his presence. It's that they're terrified. Don't we read in James, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Here in Matthew 8, 28 through 34, we see a key example of that very shuddering as the demons are confronted with the one they recognize as the son of God. You want to see an example of what James is saying? He's not just speaking hyperbolically. He's not just saying that in theory, this is how the demons respond to Jesus and the reality of who God is in relation to them. Here we can go back to Matthew and we can say, no, this really is the way that they respond. Begging, begging to be rid of his presence, begging to be absent from his presence presence. The presence of the Holy One causes terror in those who are unholy. And this is because the Holy One has the right and the ability to destroy what is opposed to God. He has the right and the ability. It's one thing to have the right to do something and not be able to do it. It's another thing to be able to do something and not have the right to do something. But he has both the right and the ability to destroy whatever is opposed to God. God is just, and his power is over all things. Now, justice is another thing that we're bringing in, right? Keep banging around on the thing. I hope you don't hear it. He has the right, the authority, and the power to deal, uh, the right and the, and the justice and the power to deal with all things. The effect is that those who know God's justice and see their wickedness for what it is have no other response to offer than terror at his presence. They just want to be away from him. They just want to be away from his goodness. They want to be away from his justice and his power and his authority and his right. In our text, we see that Christ himself is God, and this evokes the same terror in his presence as is due to God. If, that's, if James says the demons believe that God is one and they, and they shudder, and then we see that the demons shudder to be in Jesus' presence, then we see then that Jesus is God. Though he is made a little lower than the angels, indeed a little lower than all the heavenly beings, this is not by his ceasing to be over them according to his divinity. We have to have this right in our thinking. When, when the Son of God becomes man, he does not cease to be God. He is a little lower than the angels. We read it in Hebrews as as the author uh, quotes Psalm 8, that he's made a little lower the angel, than the angels, testifying to the reality of his humble humanity. But he still has authority over them. Why? Because he's no mere man. 
He's not not man and he's not a blend, but he's no mere man. And the authority that he exercises is the authority of Almighty God. The fact that he is Almighty God demonstrates to the demons that they have every reason to tremble in terror in his presence. He is God and he will deal with them. For some, we see here, remember, it's those who remain in darkness are in dread when they're in the presence of Jesus. For some, their love of the darkness appears in the context of their love for their material goods. Those from the city of the Gadarenes looked beyond the spiritual good done to them in order to reject their Lord. He created them, and they reject him. Remember at the beginning of the Gospel of John, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Now that is referencing the Israelites. But the Gadarenes, even though they're not Israelites, are also creatures of Jesus, and they did not receive him. He came to his own creatures, and these creatures did not receive him either. Why? Well, because he had brought upon them great terror. He had brought upon them great loss. You know, just as an example of this, and and it's such a small example, we know that those who are better than us, morally better than us, we get uncomfortable when we're around them because we know that in their being better than us, it accentuates our flaws. And I say that's a very small example because here is the one who is the Holy One of Israel, who is holiness and goodness itself, the very standard of all goodness and light and righteousness. And here he is in the presence of those who are wicked to their very core. And they want nothing to do with him. I say, yes, that makes sense. Not in a good way, but it does make sense in terms of our experience. What is your sense when you're around Jesus Christ? When you hear his name, when you consider his deity, when you're in the presence of his power, is it the case that you enjoy being in his presence? You say, well, I'm here on a Sunday evening hearing the preaching of the word. Obviously, I enjoy being in God's presence. Obviously, I enjoy being in Christ's presence. Maybe by appearance. Maybe to those around you. But what about in your heart? Do you enjoy being in the presence of God? Do you enjoy being in the presence of Jesus Christ? Do you enjoy contemplating the fact that he is indeed the Son of God who controls all times? Do you enjoy that? Listen, if you stand contrary to Christ, then you only add to your folly if you don't have a sense, the sense to shudder at who he is. You know, the demons are more rational because they at least have the good sense to shudder at the fact that they're in the presence of the Holy One. 
They're more rational than those who remain far from God because they have the good sense to shudder. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, and he goes about living as though there's no God. Right? No shudder, no terror, no trembling, no trepidation. Though God dogs their steps everywhere, everywhere and every way that they go. In fact, your shuddering ought to increase as you consider the fact that he has a time at which he will come to torment you with all evil spirits if you're contrary to Christ. There is a time. Not only does he behold you and have, and have the power at any moment to cut the thread of your life, but there is a time when he is coming to deal with all who are opposed to him. The Apostle Paul, speaking of earthly rulers, he says, Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? You think of a police officer, even if they're not morally better than others, you come into their presence and maybe you stand up a little straighter, you walk a little more sober, you look a little better in their presence. Because authorities are a terror to bad conduct. And so you do a quick check. Am I doing anything wrong? Do I have my seatbelt on? You look down at your speedometer and make sure you're going the right speed. Because you have a right terror with regard to the authority. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? And Paul's just speaking of earthly authorities. And he's saying you ought to, be, you ought to have a, a proper fear of the one who is in authority. We have it testified to us that Jesus is no mere mortal, no do, nor does he possess authority over only a limited area and for a limited time. Instead, it is testified that Christ sits on the throne in the heavenly places above all rule and authority and power and dominion. If you ought to have fear in front of the police officer, and if you ought to have an even greater fear in front of an earthly judge, and if you ought to have an even greater fear in front of those who could immediately take your life, then how much of a greater fear ought you to have in the presence of he who is above all authorities and can take your life not just now, but forever, who can destroy body and soul in hell forever. A greater terror is due. A greater trepidation is due. A greater fear is right if you stand contrary to Christ. Christians, though, ought this not to strengthen your confidence as you face the spiritual turmoil of this present evil age. We've been brought into a world where the spiritual forces of darkness make trophies of the dead. They celebrate the destruction of a people, of the unborn, of the aged. It is a world where the ferocity of spiritual darkness contains or constrains the freedom of those around. 
We live in a dark world. There's no question about it. This isn't just... This isn't me saying, oh, well, it's worse than than you think it is. It is actually worse than you think it is. It is a dark world full of, of a desire for death and, and a desire of, for death that constrains the freedom of others. It is spiritual darkness taunting us. It is so fierce that no one can pass its way. However... However, Christ, our heavenly king, sits enthroned in power above all authorities. He has come and bound the strong man and is plundering his treasures. He has been marching upon the broad plain of the earth with the message of his kingdom, advancing against the gates of hell and loosing the spiritual bonds of sin for 2,000 years. All authority in heaven and on earth is his, And he goes with us even to the end of the age. We are sent into a dark world. If we are Christians, we are sent into a dark world, but we are sent by Christ and we don't go away from Christ as we go into the dark world. Rather, our king advances with us. The strong man who plunders the goods you remember Jesus says that no one enters a strong man's house unless he has first bound the strong man. Then he can go in and he can plunder his goods. What does that look like? That looks like what's going on right here in Matthew 5, uh, 8, 28 to 34. You see Jesus going into the strong man's territory and saying, those two are mine. And sending out the, the strong man and his minions. That same one goes with us. And so, shouldn't this stir in you a resolve to be without fear as you stand in the truth of the gospel and the love of God? And as the world rejects you for the sake of the word, ought this not to strengthen your resolve that the king goes with you? Yes, you go into darkness, but the king goes with you. The king in power. Didn't our Lord teach us to pray, deliver us from evil? The answer is yes. Deliver us from evil. And that could be deliver us from the evil one, as well as all the effects of his work in this world. As J.C. Ryle puts it, quoting Hebrews 7, it would be miserable indeed to know that there is a devil ever near us. It would be miserable if we knew that there's a devil ever near us, if we did not also know that Christ is able to save to the uttermost because he ever liveth to make intercession for us. That would be a great terror, wouldn't it? Except Christ is with us. Christ is ever near us. However near a devil is to us, Christ is nearer. Christ is is in us. Christ is among us. Christ is before us. Christ is behind us. Christ is above us. Christ is underneath us, bearing us up. Christ is leading our way. Christ is guarding our rear. Christ is all around caring for us. Oh, the armies of the devil might come against us, but behold, 
there is a legion of angels guarding our way. Now, notice, though, even with that great reality of the confidence that we can have in the fact that Jesus is with us, notice that the fact of Christ's authority over the dark spirits of this world does not necessarily mean that you will be accepted. It does not necessarily mean that you will be accepted. The fact that Christ is with you, that the king is advancing, that his kingdom is marching against the gates of hell, does not necessarily mean that you will be accepted. A city which had experienced the great salvation of two of their own, in addition to their own welfare, since no one was able to pass by, likewise rejected the very one who performed the great act. They rejected him. This is a shocking thing. Maybe you've never been around someone who was possessed by demons, but I would imagine that if they were suddenly exercised, there would be great rejoicing over the reality of their deliverance. And yet, they beg him to leave. How common is it in your mind that the performance of some particular act will ensure your acceptance by the world? I'm just going to live the, the Christian life. I'm just going to do the right thing and they'll accept me because they'll see the goodness of the thing and they'll receive me and they'll be happy to have me around. Do you think that doing something that benefits people at a deeper level then the surface benefit of a herd of swine will de facto garner the praise of your fellow man. Do you think that, that benefiting people in a deep and abiding way will automatically garner praise from your fellow man? Surely their souls and their bodies were of more value than 2,000 swine, Surely anybody in their right mind would recognize that and count the loss as no big deal because they had gained two of their own. And yet, and yet, we often think that the world will receive us differently. That if I just pursue this higher good, they'll recognize that what seemed to be a loss was no loss at all. No. Someone lights a fire so as to give warmth in the home in the cold of winter. Yet those around complain only of the smoke that brings a stench to their clothing. That's the sort of thing that happens. Didn't our Lord say, blessed are you when others persecute you? For shedding the light, for being as a light on a hill for being as salt on the earth, for going forth with the gospel and testifying to the good news that our souls could be saved. Jesus said, Blessed are you when others persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The blessing assumes that people won't always respond in a way that is most sensible 
most righteous, most good. Even in those times, though, we remember that our king is with us. Our king is with us. He does indeed go with us. They begged him to leave their, leave their region. And he goes in the next verse. He gets in the boat and crosses over and came to his own city. And his disciples have him with them still. Even when we're rejected, we know that our king remains with us. May our king ever keep our eyes focused on him as we make our way from this world of death to the heaven of life. Amen. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, you are more kind than we deserve. You come into the darkness of this world and you confront those who sat in darkness with the goodness of your grace. And you give life where there had been only death. You bring forth life in places where there had been trophies of Satan's reign. We thank you, O God, for your great grace. And we ask, God, that as we walk in this world, that we would walk in the joy that we have Christ himself with us, Christ before us, Christ in us, we ask, God, that you would give us confidence that he is indeed with us. I pray, Father, that those who remain far from God, those who remain in their sins, those who are walking in the course of the evil spirits, that they would consider their state and shudder. That they would weep, as we thought about this morning, and that they would draw near to Christ, that they might have salvation of their souls. I pray, Father, that you would give us confidence as we find that we are rejected by those whom we seek to do good to. And I pray, God, that you would cause your kingdom to advance in this world for the sake of Christ and his name. Amen.